Good morning, everyone. You are listening to the podcast, The Leaves of a Victim Nevermore with Stephen Wilson. I am Stephen Wilson. I'm an adult survivor of childhood sex abuse, and this podcast is meant as a form of therapy. It is meant for those that have suffered or been a victim of sex abuse as a child, or they are suffering from addiction. For today's reading, and for those of you that are new, this um, I'm going to maintain the same form. Um, I normally read something that I find, uh, you know, is corresponding with the topic of the podcast. Uh, today's reading comes from John Dewey, Theory of a Moral Life. The question of what ends a man should live for does not arise as a general problem in customary morality. It is forestalled by habits and institutions which a person finds existing all about him. What others, especially elders, are doing provides the ends for which one should act. These ends are sanctioned by tradition they are hallowed by the semi-divine character of the ancestors who instituted the customs. They are set forth by the wise elders and are enforced by the rulers. Individuals trespass, deviating from these established purposes, but they do so with the conviction that thereby social condemnation, reinforced by supernatural penalties inflicted by divine beings, ensues. There are today multitudes of men and women who take their aims from what they observe to be going on around them. They accept the aims provided by religious teachers, by political authorities, by persons in the community who have prestige. Failure to adopt such a course would seem to many persons to be a kind of moral rebellion or anarchy. Many other persons find their ends practically forced upon them. Because of lack of education and because of economic stress, they, for the most part, do just what they have to do. In the absence of the possibility of real choice, such a thing as reflection upon purposes and the attempt to frame a general theory of ends and the good would seem to be idle luxuries. There can, however, be no such thing as reflective morality, except where men seriously ask by what purposes they should direct their conduct and why they should do so. What it is and what makes their purposes good. Their intellectual search for ends is bound to arise when customs fail to give required guidance. And this failure happens when old institutions break down when invasions from without and inventions and innovations from within radically alter the course of life. If habit fails, the sole alternative to caprice and random action is reflection, and reflection upon what one shall do is identical with formation of ends. Moreover, when social change is great and a great variety of conflicting aims are suggested, Reflection cannot be limited to the selection of one end out of a number which are suggested by conditions. Thinking has to, be, thinking has to operate creatively to form new ends. 
Every habit introduces continuity into activity. It furnishes a permanent thread or axis. When custom breaks down, the only thing which can link together the succession of various acts is a common purpose running through separate acts, and in view gives unity and continuity, whether it can be securing of an education, the carrying on of a military campaign, or the building of a house. The more inclusive the aim in question, the broader is the unification which is attained. Comprehensive ends may connect together acts performed during a long span of years. To the common soldier or even the general in command, winning the campaign may be sufficiently comprehensive aim to unify the acts into conduct. But someone is bound to ask, what then? To what uses shall victory when achieved be put? At least that question is bound to be asked, provided men are intelligently interested in their behavior and are not governed by chance and the pressure of passing moments. The development of inclusive and enduring aims is the necessary condition of the application of reflection and conduct. Indeed, they are two names for the same fact. There can be no such thing as reflective morality where there is no solicitude for the ends to which action is directed. That was John Dewey, Theory of the Moral Life. Well, today, folks, today is about ethics. <laughs> ethics. I can tell you in all my travels, trying to define that term in academia and in the real world, and in the church, in the family, it is all relative. Perhaps ethics itself is the proof that truth is relative. But we must begin somewhere, so we take John Dewey and we say ethics. Define it. Okay. Ethics is the science of conduct, the metric, right or wrong, good or bad. But what is the moral life? Now, I'm not saying that you should go out and read that book. I'm not trying to promote John Dewey. But he is part of experimental design, not only in educational psychology, but experimentation as a whole. Why do you experiment, and how do you conduct yourself? John Dewey was someone that, although in the social sciences, was always particular in whom he actually acknowledged in his writings, papers, and books. But he always brought up Immanuel Kant. And I, in, in brevity, I will say that Immanuel Kant, in regards to the moral life, whatever that may be, it is for him always sequential. Something comes before something else. And the characteristics therein are due to that sequence. But the concept of morality 
is morality ethics? Is that is it ethical to have morality? For John Dewey, it was about reflection. It was about the ability to look at your your own action, your own conduct, and analyze it for yourself by yourself. Well, okay. I always thought for myself that ethics was really, and I know that it's a, it's kind of a weak metaphor, but I always used driving an automobile in regards to ethics. I, I actually did use it in a debate in social psych, and I, I did actually write a paper on it, um, not in doctoral, but in undergrad. But you think about driving. You think about driving an automobile, regardless of what country you're in. I've been in several countries, and it's always about the rules of engagement. And so driving, you, you, you immediately go into what it is that you're doing. I'm, I'm in an automobile, I'm going from point A to point B, and I, I have a car that requires maintenance, insurance, licensing. I can merge, I can turn, I go forward, I go back. I can be with other people, I can be by myself. But if you're a bad driver, does it indicate that you're a bad human? Well, I'm sure you can imagine what kind of response I get, or rather what I got in the debate. especially from the people that are acknowledged as bad drivers, the people that have proof, the people that have been accidents, the people that have, you know, butted up fender bender, uh, speeding tickets. But the reason that I always brought up driving in regards to ethics, the, the conduct, the science of conduct, as, as John Dewey noted, is that driving goes back into the philosophy of law. And Bentham brings up in the philosophy of law what's called legal positivism. Now, I've spoken of this before, but just as a quick return, legal positivism is the concept, the way law is versus the way law ought to be. Uh, legal positivism helps people kind of go through the nuances of what is the justice revenge paradigm. And for some people, they get stuck in it and they don't want to talk about it. But morality is about truth. Truth is relative. And so when we start talking about the philosophy of law, and it is one of the main Achilles of law. What is the origin of the law? Why do you have law? Why do I listen to that person? Why should I listen to X? Why should I listen to the judge? Why should I listen to the cop? Why should I listen to God? Why should I listen to the disciple? Why should I listen to my parents any more than I would a football coach or a hockey coach? Why? Everybody seems to have their rules of engagement. Everybody seems to have the way to conduct themselves. You think about for yourself. How many times have you been in a vehicle, whether you were driving or not, and you could see the posted speed limit 
and you knew that you were going over the speed limit. 20 times, 50 times, a thousand times, you were driving, you were riding in an automobile that was going faster than the posted speed limit. But you didn't get an accident, you didn't get a ticket. And so here, this is what Bentham is talking about. In the philosophy of law, what we're dealing with is not only the origin of X, what is X, but what about the application of X? Now, in my own studies, when I was in school, I had the, uh, uh, well, I will say honor, but that's not really true. I did have the ability to ride with police officers to conduct a sociological experiment on Friday evenings and Saturday evenings in Memphis, Knoxville, and Nashville. It was from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. And one of the things that the cops will tell you is that they can't be everywhere all the time. They're always going to be outnumbered. And this is just a general theory. I'm not saying that these, this is something that all cops deal with. Psychology was the one that built the filter anyway for them to get through the academy. So I guess I did have an advantage, but I was there for observation only. I wasn't there to uh, be an inquisitor. But there were cops that believed that they should be an attorney. There were cops that believed they should be a judge. I decide who to pull over. Four people sped past me. I decided to pull over the fifth. Why? Well, I was sick and tired of sitting there. And then you got the young buck, the go-getter. They want to they wanna solve every possible crime before midnight. And they are exhausted. And the one thing that I found at the end of the shift is that it's very difficult for the police officer to remain faithful in that belief that there is something good about the human because the police officer deals with the garbage. They deal with the bottom of the barrel. They deal with somebody who beats their child. They, they deal with somebody who beats their wife or their girlfriend. They, they deal with people, women, that, that pimp out their children for drugs. They deal with the bottom of the barrel. So it's very difficult, if, if even impossible, for them to maintain a moral compass. I did not tell them but I was observing them and recording them. I told them that it was about the individuals that they were dealing with, every call, but that wasn't necessarily true. I understand that that is ethically wrong in experimental design, but I've always been a big fan of anarchia. I always wanted truth. So I was willing to ignore the rules. And I think that's important. Because when I start dealing with these things in school and I start seeing the application of it, I'm studying psychology, I'm, I'm studying psychiatry, I, I'm dealing with pharmacology, I'm dealing with therapy, I'm dealing with institutionalization, I'm dealing with everything, the residual 
of, of the politics of the institution, all of the Reaganomics, because by the 1990s, many of the institutions were getting ready to shut down. So what do you do with the people on the margin? Can you be ethical? Can you remain faithful to your compass in a construct where nobody else is doing the same? That's not so easy. Because here again, we're, we're talking about legal positivism, and, and that means that we're dealing with the way law is versus the way law ought to be. When a father realizes that somebody raped their daughter, and then they decide to kill the person that raped their daughter, and then that jury decides to acquit the man, everybody knows it's murder. But there appears to be a situation where murder is okay. Yes, it's true, he took a life, but he took the life that raped his daughter. So it appears that a moral compass, if even one does exist, we have the ability to put it down or pick it up and look at it at our own discretion. And this deals with the philosophy of law. This deals with the Achilles. This in itself is what makes the concept of law somewhat weak. Because when you look at the philosophy of law, you're dealing with that Achilles. You're dealing with that premise. Law that is not applied is law that doesn't exist. What is the utility of that speeding limit when you go over that speed limit and you do not wreck, you do not get into an accident, you do not get a speeding ticket? Maybe you upset someone, maybe there was a, maybe there was a trigger for uh, road rage, but you, you conducted yourself in a way where you got from point A to point B, maybe it was on your way to the church, maybe you're on your way to work, maybe you're on your way to your vacation spot, on your way to the airport, whatever. From A to B, you're in your car, you're driving, you're riding along. You broke the law, but there was no consequence. So here, in that moral reflection, when you think back, do you even think about that? How many times have you changed lanes without a turn signal? How many times have you cut somebody off? How many times have you sat behind somebody and then you realize that person is going to force you to miss the light because they were doing something? How many times have you seen somebody on their phone sitting at a light that just turned green? 1001, 1002, 1003. Okay, what the fuck, bud? Go, it's green. But John Dewey, when he talks about the absence of consequence, we're still talking about the origins of it. The reason that I wrote this. I mean, I'm sorry. The reason that I read the passage that I did is that John Dewey made a, a slight reference to a deity because although he is somewhat antiquated, I guess, in educational and social psych now, maybe even in philosophy, but John Dewey was one of the people that questioned the idea can you be moral? Can you live a moral life and not believe in a higher power?
There is no afterlife. There is no bliss. There is no pain. There is no lake of fire. There are no virgins. There is no bar that never closes. That's it. Curtains. Because this is important. Well over 95% of the people on this planet believe in some kind of higher power, and that includes an alien. And that number is dwindling. But when you start talking about conduct, you write down on them something on a piece of paper, and then you tell somebody, I want you to enforce the law. This is how you operate a motor vehicle. This is how you operate a business. This is how you conduct yourself Monday through Saturday. This is how you conduct yourself on Sunday. But if the origin of the law, the origin of X, comes into play and you're like, well... I'm not feeling it. I understand it. I can read it. People have been teaching it to me. But I don't agree. Well, when we start talking about Greek philosophy and moral life, we're going to have to deal with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Diogenes and right down the line. And John Dewey did bring up Plato's Republic, which is another reason I read that passage. But when you start to ask the question, can morality be taught? Okay, you go to church. You feel guilty because you masturbate. You feel guilty because you drink alcohol. Well, that's in the, con that's in the context of religion. We're not actually in prohibition here in America, so you drink alcohol, it's, as long as you're 21, as long as you're not behind the wheel of an automobile, you're, you're good to go. can't violate yourself, can't rape yourself. At least I don't think you can. But you feel guilty. Why? You see, if you're told how to behave, if it doesn't come from you, if it's not internal, it's external. If you're told how to conduct yourself, this is what it is to be married. This is what it is to be a good neighbor. This is what it is to be a good human being. What happens if you disobey your teacher? Because here, we, don't really, we really don't have to go very far. It appears that disobedience is immoral itself. Do as I say, not as I do, is a horrible teaching mechanism. But you do it anyway. Mama comes up to the girls. She loves her daughters. 
Babies, what's on the inside is all that matters. But Mama won't go outside without her face. She's a hypocrite. To the passerby, it appears that Mama is a good Christian. She's a good mom. But is, is she really afraid of religion? Is she afraid to die? Because what's going to happen to her according to the Bible? Well, what's going to happen to her according to her boss? What's going to happen uh, according to her husband? You see, every single time you go outside, you're dealing with multiple points of articulation, and every one of them comes with a, a well, a book of a code of conduct. This is how you dress. This is how you behave. That's it. And it's almost as if the more that you conform, the easier it gets to stay. If you obey, you can stay. If you don't conform, you got to leave. And here in America, we put everybody in prison. We do not hesitate. The moral police, the court of public opinion, all kinds of judgment going on. But do Americans, do people really care about truth? Or are they really looking for validation for their way of life? This is what it is to be a Christian. This is what it is to be a Muslim. This is what it is to be a Jew. This is what it is to be an atheist. This is what it is to be a Republican. This is how to conduct yourself as a Democrat, a good Democrat, not a bad one. A good Republican, not a bad one. You get behind that wheel and you own it, don't you? How many times have you had a couple drinks and you said, fuck it, I'm going to drive anyway? You got to catch me if you can. One final bit that I, I wanted to talk about was the death penalty. Because in all my travels, America is by far the biggest offender. But the thing is, is that B.F. Skinner made it quite clear. Behavior modification has to take place rather quickly. When the pigeon depressed the button, you got to feed them right now. Because pretty soon, if you don't, they're going to stop doing what you want them to do. The pigeon is not going to obey. That means they won't get fed. And it takes some time to understand. But in America, somebody sits on death row for 25 years. They get a last meal. They get a pleasant needle on the arm. They can get married. They can get a college degree. They can do whatever they wish. They didn't conform. They didn't obey. And now they have to go. But law exists, punishment exists, but the American does it anyway. Well, that's all I have. You've been listening to The Leaves of a Victim Nevermore with Stephen Wilson.
My name is Stephen Wilson, and I hope that you become a blessing, and I hope that you find serenity. Enjoy the day.